Last week I was speaking of the enlightenment factor of tranquility and how the happiness that comes from that state of calm leads quite naturally into the next factor of awakening, which is concentration. In Pali, the Pali word for concentration is samadhi. So tonight I'd like to speak about this enlightenment factor of concentration, of what it is, of why it's important, and how to develop it in a relaxed and balanced way. Now the term samadhi refers to two related but different things. The first thing it refers to is the specific mental factor of one-pointedness. And the function of this factor in the mind, this mental factor, is to unify all the other qualities of mind, to gather them all and settle them on a single object of concentration. So when one-pointedness is strong, when this factor has been developed, we experience it as non-distractedness. The mind isn't wavering. It's like a candle which is burning, the flame is burning in a windless place. And the flame stays still. So that's the quality of non-distractedness, non-wavering. And when concentration, this factor of one point in this is strong, both in our lives and in our practice, we experience it, we feel it as peace. Now it's interesting to note that in the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, one-pointedness is a common factor, which means that it's arising to some degree in every moment of consciousness. In other words, it's always present. Samadhi is always present to some degree or other. Because if there were no one-pointedness at all, then there would be no basis for actually connecting with what was arising. We wouldn't know anything because the mind would not be landing on the object in any way. So we might think, great, samadhi is always there. What do we have to do? But even though there's some degree of one-pointedness which is always present in order for us to know anything, This factor of mind, as we know, is often weak and unstable. And the Buddha described this situation quite clearly in a verse in the Dhammapada. He said, the mind, hard to control, flighty, alighting where it wishes, one does well to tame. The well-trained mind brings happiness. So most of us can probably relate to the flighty mind, alighting where it will. You know, we see over and over again how it's as if the mind hops on these trains of association and off it goes even before we're aware that a thought is present in the mind. The mind is flitting from one thing to another. This flighty mind one does well to tame. 
The well-trained mind brings happiness. So even though we experience this flighty mind, it's important to remember that the mind has the capacity to be trained. It has the capacity to develop and strengthen this factor of concentration through skillful practice. The Pali word for meditation is bhavana. And bhavana literally means causing to be developed or to cause to be developed. You know, and we can see this just as we get stronger through physical exercise. If we train in a physical discipline, the body becomes stronger. In exactly the same way, through meditation practice, we can cause concentration and the other wholesome factors to be developed. And that is precisely what meditation means. Now, the Buddhist texts describe two different kinds of concentration, two different types. We could call one type fixed object concentration. And this is when we train the mind to stay steady on a single object. And in the teachings, there are 40 traditional subjects or objects of concentration. Just to give you a sense of the breadth you know, of possibility here, the Buddha talked about developing this fixed object concentration on the breath or on any of the Brahma-viharas of loving-kindness or compassion or joy or equanimity. We can develop concentration on what are called kasinas, which are discs, usually colored, but it could be uh, of earth, it could be of water, <coughs> where the mind takes that disc as the object of concentration and keeps the mind steady on it. There are concentration practices on the 32 parts of the body. There's a whole series of concentration practices which probably would be useful to us as we age on various stages of decaying corpses. There are also concentration practices on various contemplative meditations reflecting on the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, on generosity, on morality, on peace. There are ways to actually develop one-pointedness on each of these subjects. When we practice concentration in this way, on a fixed object, it can lead us to different levels of meditative absorption. So this is the first type of concentration, of one-pointedness. The second type of samadhi is called momentary concentration. And this is a strongly developed factor of one-pointedness that arises continuously, moment after moment, but on changing objects. Where we're not trying to keep the mind steady on a single object, We're aware of the flow of changing objects, but in each moment, 
the mind is steady and one-pointed on whatever's arising in the moment. When there's a continuity of mindfulness, and this is how this momentary concentration is developed, when there's a strong continuity of mindfulness, then the momentary samadhi becomes very steady, very stable. And as it increases in strength, this kind of momentary concentration, we begin to feel a very natural and easeful momentum in the practice. Because this momentary concentration, when it's strengthened, when it's steady, keeps the mind from wavering, from being distracted. So this kind of concentration doesn't lead to absorption, doesn't lead to those kinds of absorbed states, but rather it's the basis for different kinds and different levels of Vipassana insights. Okay, so now I want to come back to the two meanings of the word samadhi. The first meaning is the mental factor of one-pointedness in either of its forms, developed through fixed object concentration or unchanging objects. So samadhi means one-pointedness in either of those ways. The second meaning of the term samadhi is more general. It has a more general significance and refers to the whole range of meditative states as the concentration deepens. And so samadhi in this sense, in this more general sense, is not limited to just the factor of one-pointedness when it's referring to the different levels of deepening concentration the many different states of mind that arise, samadhi here then includes all the factors of those states. So it could include factors of rapture and joy and calm and tranquility. So many other factors are brought in in this more general meaning of samadhi. This general meaning is meditative states. Okay, so samadhi means the particular factor of one-pointedness. It also means, more generally, meditative states of concentration on various levels. So in order to understand this enlightenment factor of concentration, remember we're discussing the factors of enlightenment, there's one more term to explore. And this term in Pali is jhana. That's J-H-A-N-A. Now the literal definition of jhana is to meditate. So jhana means meditation. But it's used to describe different levels of samadhi, different levels of concentration. There was a great Buddhist commentator, his name was Buddhaghosa, who 
lived sometime way back then. And he describes jhana as having the characteristic of contemplation. And he then goes on to clarify that. And it's a clarification that will serve us well as we want to understand concentration as an enlightenment factor. So Buddha Gosa talks of jhana as being contemplation, both of a single object, and this is the one-pointedness that leads to absorption, of what we usually call jhana. But he also says that jhana means contemplation not only of a specific object, it also means contemplation of the characteristics of phenomena. So jhana in this sense, contemplating the characteristics of phenomena, this is the concentration which leads to meditative insights. So these deepening stages of insight are sometimes called vipassana jhanas. On a fixed object, the mind becomes absorbed. It's the jhana of absorption. When we're contemplating the characteristics of of phenomena, this leads to insight and what are called the vipassana jhanas. So this is just to kind of give you some framework of understanding these terms. Over the last years, as most of you know, there has been a growing (coughs) interest in jhana practice, and particularly the states of absorption. Not surprisingly, though, different teachers have very different views both on what these states are and how best to develop them. So some of the differences of views regarding jhana, and particularly the absorptions, some of the differences have to do with what depth of absorption is needed for it to really be a jhanic state. People have different views and ideas about this of whether one loses all awareness of the body and the physical senses in those states. That's some view of jhana. Other teachers say that in the jhanic state there is still awareness of subtle bodily energies. Some teachers in the practice of jhana emphasize the arising of the nimitta, which is a mental sign or a mental image. And that nimitta or that mental sign becomes the object of jhana concentration. Other teachers speak of the jhanic factors like rapture or joy as themselves being the nimitta. And so in those techniques of practice, one is actually focusing on the feeling of rapture or the feeling of joy. So you see, there's quite a range of interpretation. Some teachers say that insight can be developed while one is in the jhanic state. And other teachers say, impossible. You need to actually come out of jhana in order to contemplate 
the changing nature of phenomena. So what do we do with all this? You know, there's so many different views. Even though different teachers and schools and traditions understand differently what the Buddha meant when he repeatedly emphasized the importance of experiencing jhana and the development of it, there is still fundamental agreement, and I think this is what's most important. All the teachers agree that deepening states of concentration, deepening states of samadhi, of unification, of steadiness, of non-distractedness of mind, that all of these deepening states are skillful in themselves and powerful supports for the development of wisdom. So we could just play in our own exploration of this, if one is interested, we can learn from different teachers and have the different experiences that arise from particular practices. So rather than getting attached to an opinion or a view on this matter, we just see, yes, jhana has been interpreted in different ways. The importance of deepening concentration is unquestioned in whatever way, whatever particular way we practice So this is a little bit of a description of what concentration is. The second question to consider is why is it important? Why is it important to develop samadhi to whatever level? The Buddha often spoke of how wisdom is born from concentration. I just want to read from one of the suttas. For one who is concentrated, one knows and sees things as they really are. For one who is concentrated, one knows and sees things as they really are. For one who knows things as they really are, turning away and dispassion arise. For one who experiences turning away and dispassion, It is a natural law that knowledge and vision of liberation will arise. Thus, monks, the preceding qualities flow into the succeeding ones, and the succeeding qualities bring the preceding ones to perfection, foregoing from the near shore to the far shore. So we can see in in the sequence how concentration is the foundation. Concentration is the basis for the deepening of the wisdom that leads to liberation. The Parinibbana Sutta is the discourse which describes the last days of the Buddha's life. And there's a lot of different teachings and material in this sutta. And in it, the Buddha lays out what he calls the 37 principles of enlightenment. Lady Sayadaw, who is one of the great 
Burmese scholars and meditation masters, he said that they are called the principles of enlightenment because they are the proximate causes, the requisite ingredients, and the sufficing conditions for awakening. You know, so in case we wanted the recipe for enlightenment, it's like the Buddha laid it out. The proximate causes, the requisite ingredients, the sufficing conditions for awakening. These 37 principles of enlightenment. And in this grouping of the 37 principles of enlightenment, concentration appears many different times. It's a key factor, it's a key ingredient in this cake of enlightenment. You know, it appears as one of the five ruling faculties, along with mindfulness, you know, and energy, and faith, and wisdom. It's one of the five powers, which are those same qualities brought to an even greater strength. As a power, they described their qualities with a fearless, fearless firmness. So I like that. Just, just think of faith and mindfulness and energy, and concentration and wisdom with a fearless firmness. Can you imagine what that mind would be like? Really unshaken. Samadhi, concentration, also appears as one of the seven factors of enlightenment, which we've been discussing. It's the last step in the Eightfold Path. So it appears again and again and again you know, in this 37 principles of enlightenment. We can see that the Buddha was clearly highlighting concentration as one of the key players on this path of awakening. There's one discourse where the Buddha described four developments of concentration. And each one, in turn, answers the question, why is it important? So I thought I would just briefly go through these four developments. The first development of concentration, the Buddha said, is that it leads to a pleasant abiding here and now. Samadhi is a pleasant place to hang out. And I'll just read to you the definition of the first jhana, which is the first level of absorption. There is the case where a bhikkhu, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, enters and remains in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure, born from seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. He permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with rapture and pleasure, born from seclusion. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure, born from seclusion. Sounds nice. There is the same caution here that we mentioned with regard to the enlightenment factor of tranquility, 
regarding getting attached to these pleasurable states. And then simply staying caught up in the cycle of conditioned becoming. So there is that danger of attachment. But still the Buddha, in countless places in the discourses, he refers to the jhanas over and over again in so many suttas. He praises them as being a blameless kind of happiness. You can see in the Bodhisattva's own quest for enlightenment, you know, and you probably, most of you know uh, this story, you spend six years engaged in the most severe austerities in an effort to awaken. And he really tormented his body. And at the end of those six years of austerities, he realized that this was not the way. It wasn't getting him what he desired, what he aspired to. And then at a certain point he remembered sitting as a very young boy in the shade of a rose, rose apple tree watching a plowing ceremony that his father, the king, was uh, leading. And as, as he was sitting in the shade, the cool shade of the tree, just watching the ceremony, it said that his mind spontaneously entered into the first jhana, into the joy of it, the happiness of it, the pleasure of it. And he realized, these many years later, that that concentrated state, that happy state, is not something to be feared, it's not something to be avoided. It is in fact arising because the mind at that time is secluded from the hindrance the hindrances, secluded from the defilements. And that that happy state, that pleasurable state, can actually be used as the basis of awakening. So he had this remembrance, and as you know, he sat down that night under the Bodhi tree, entered into the first and then succeeding jhanas, and through the great strength of his concentration then, he began to explore the mind, to explore the causes and the end of suffering. And then as the legend goes, just at the first sight of the morning star when it first appeared in the sky, his mind awakened to full liberation. So this is the first development of concentration, understanding that it is a pleasant abiding here and now, and that this is not something to be avoided or feared. It's a skillful state. It's a wholesome state. So the second development of concentration leads to the attainment of what is called knowledge and vision. And in this context, knowledge and vision refers to something specifically, refers to the special power of the divine eye, which along with the other supernormal powers can be developed based on this deep samadhi, based on the fourth jhana. So I'd like to read just a little bit to you from the book on Deepama, who I'm sure most of you know, was one of our teachers in this 
most, most extraordinary yogi, you know, who had a lot of suffering in her life and then went on to the monastery and very quickly attained to high stages of enlightenment and attained all the levels of jhana, all the levels of samadhi, all the different supernormal powers. Uh, And she was just this extraordinary being combining this tremendous power and strength of mind, combining that with the most complete and unconditioned, unconditional love and metta, and the deepest quality and feeling of peace. So she combined all of these qualities. But I wanted to read just a little bit about this particular development of concentration, which is the divine eye and the other powers. According to Manindra, who was Deepama's teacher, Deepama demonstrated each of these powers to him. The following accounts are based on Manindra's recollections. You may not believe it, he said, but it's true. Once Munindra was in his room when he noticed something unusual in the sky outside his window. He looked out and saw Deepama in the air near the tops of the trees, grinning at him and playing in a room she had built in the sky. By changing the air element into the earth element, she had been able to create a structure in mid-air. Changing denser elements to air produced only slightly less astonishing occurrences. Sometimes Deepama and her sister Hema arrived for interviews with Munindra by spontaneously appearing in his room, and Deepama occasionally left by walking through the closed door. If she was feeling especially playful, she might rise from her chair, go to the nearest wall, and walk right through it. Goes on and on. (laughs) One more. When the Burmese diplomat Utant was about to become the new Secretary General of the United Nations, Munindra, knowing that Utant would give an acceptance speech, asked Deepama to go into the future and remember the content. She She recited the speech and Munindra recorded it. A month later, according to Munindra, Utant gave the exact speech, word for word, just as Deepama had predicted. So this is the second development of concentration. The first is the pleasant abiding here and now. And the second is the potential of mind for these extraordinary powers. And as Munindra said, it's very hard, especially coming from a Western uh, viewpoint, it's very hard even to believe that it's possible. Um, that's why I like what he says. You, you don't have to believe it. It's true. <laughs> but here, even more than with the pleasant abiding, we really do need to pay attention to the possible dangers of these powers. Because if they're developed without the concomitant wisdom, then they can become a very dangerous force. And there are many stories in the suttas of when they were used in an unskillful way. You may know the story of Devadatta, the Buddha's cousin, 
who was always in rivalry with the Buddha for the leadership of the Sangha and was always plotting against him. Devadatta had very deep samadhi and had developed all of these powers and he was using them in unskillful ways and it led eventually to this tremendous pride and his downfall. And even, you know, the great Tibetan yogi, Milarepa, said to be the greatest of the yogis, in his early career he also had developed powers of mind and used them uh, as a vehicle of revenge and caused suffering. Only in his case, because he had such strong potential for wisdom, he reflected on what he had done with these powers and it motivated him actually to go and seek enlightenment and liberation. So they're very seductive for the ego. Remember when I first went to India and was practicing and when Indra was telling me all these Deepama stories, I would be sitting meditating and I'd be having all these fantasies in my mind of how I was going to fly through my friend's windows and you know, play the stock market. And <laughs> it wasn't so much of a danger for me because I really didn't have any aptitude at all <laughs> for the level of concentrated concentration needed. But I could see the tendency of the mind. Uh, so it's useful to be aware of that. But when this development of concentration, you know, which is a very high development, and the potential for these supernormal powers uh, is there, when they're combined with wisdom, genuine wisdom, the real understanding of selflessness and emptiness, even though they're not at all necessary for awakening, we could think of them as being the adornments of the enlightened mind. You know, they just show the potential, the amazing potential of this mind of ours. This mind that we know so little about. Okay, so the first development of concentration is the pleasant abiding here and now. The pleasurable states of concentration, deep concentration. The second is second development is these powers of mind. The third development of concentration the Buddha talked of brings us into the arena of insight and wisdom. And this is the development of samadhi that leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. So the Buddha described this as using the concentrated mind, as using the development of samadhi, so that, and I'm quoting here from the suttas, using the concentrated mind so that feelings unknown as they arise persist and pass away. Using the concentrated mind so that perceptions unknown as they arise persist and pass away. That thoughts unknown as they arise persist and pass away. So you can see this is the use of samadhi, of concentration, for the very practice that we're doing. As you know from your own experience, without the steadiness of at least some degree of concentration, 
it becomes so easy to get caught up in feelings and perceptions and thoughts, taking them to be self, taking them to be I. And where we get carried away on these trains of association, of reaction, of judgment, not seeing clearly their arising and passing. It's the power of concentration, this one-pointedness, the steadiness of mind, undistractedness of mind, that allows us to see clearly. That's why wisdom is born from concentration. We need the steadiness of mind in order to see how feelings, how thoughts, how perceptions are simply arising and passing. And so don't cling to them, don't take them to be self or I. It's through the power of a steady mind that we're able to see what is really going on. And the fourth development of concentration just takes this third step, third development, one step further. The Buddha talked about how the fourth development of concentration leads to the ending and the uprooting of the defilements. So this is really the culmination of the path. This is using the power of concentration, the power of strong samadhi, to see with such deep insight that the defilements not only are kept at bay, but actually uprooted from the mind stream. And the Buddha talked of this development of concentration or application of samadhi as remaining focused on the arising and falling away of the aggregates, of the five aggregates. So this is concentration used in the service of liberating wisdom. And again, just this is this is a very direct teaching from the Buddha in this regard. He said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Remember, contemplation is one of the meanings of jhana. Contemplating the characteristics of phenomena. So this is not the jhana of absorption. This is the jhana of contemplating the characteristics. Whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate fading away, letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. And when not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. This is the development and the application of samadhi, of concentration, in the service of seeing the impermanence of feeling and all the other aggregates. To contemplate the fading away, the letting go. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. So it's very clear. You know, it takes practice. As Munindraji would often say, it's simple but not easy. 
Right? It's the instruction, the understanding of what liberates the mind is not complicated. But it's not easy because we need to practice, we need to cause to be developed the different factors of enlightenment. And in particular, the one we're talking tonight about is concentration. Now what's interesting is that these insight practices of seeing the rising and falling away of all phenomena can be done either with the strong samadhi of momentary concentration or by using the meditative absorption as the basis for this investigation. So we can use either, either form of concentration. Now Upandita, Saida Upandita described the relative power of these two methods, right, of whether we use jhanic absorption for insight or momentary concentration. He said momentary concentration is like swimming across a lake. And absorption, jhanic absorption, is like having a motorboat. So for someone who has a motorboat, the journey is obviously much quicker and more enjoyable. Sometimes, though, depending on the level of jhanic absorption one is referring to, because again, some teachers are referring to a level that's quite easily accessible. Some teachers are talking of jhanic absorption as being a state that's actually quite difficult for most people. So depending on which level we're talking about, and also on one's own particular background in parame, you know, some people, for whatever reason, whether it's from practice in this life or previous lives, they have a natural affinity for deep samadhi. You know, this is a skill that they come into life with, and it's very easy and natural for them. Others may not have this parami well-developed, and so it's much more of a struggle. So even though going across the lake in a motorboat is much quicker and more enjoyable, for some people, it might actually take less time to swim across the lake than to build the boat. So we need to recognize what our own particular skills are in practice, what our strengths are. As we become a stronger swimmer, we actually develop enough strength of concentration to take us all the way to final liberation. And this is what the Buddha called the path of dry insight. That is insight without jhanic attainment. Well, using this example, the jhanic motorboat might better be called dry and the path of the swimmer in the water called the path of wet insight. But This is not something that was made up recently. The Buddha actually referred to these two different paths. And there's a sutta you know, in the Pali text where someone came to a group of enlightened monks. They were arhants. They were a group of arhants. 
and they came asking if you know they had attained the jhana of meditative absorptions and the monks replied and these are, these are arhans we are contemplatives dry insight meditators liberated by wisdom alone you know so it's important to understand that there are many paths you know we can do it through the concentration of absorption we can do it through the momentary concentration that's very well developed so as we hear about these different ways we just kind of explore for ourselves what is most suitable what serves us the best in our own practice at any particular time I think it's very important not to get attached to a view that there's one right way or that the two ways are even in opposition because I found in my own practice that there's actually a rhythm in these two different kinds of practices the practice of absorption the practice of momentary concentration And when I first went to India, I had just finished my time in the Peace Corps. I had come back to America, tried to practice by myself, realized I need some guidance. So I went ba- I went back to India. This was in 1967 and I was just 23 years old. When ended up in Bodh Gaya, met Munindraji, and when I sat down the first time, I had some kind of little light you know, in my mind. So I was very excited. I told Munindra about it. and having just trained deeper mom maybe he thought oh maybe there's another <laughs> deeper pa <laughs> so he said well why don't you just concentrate on the light so i started doing that and you know light light just repeating focusing on the light within a few days i was a wreck i was i was just struggling so much and trying so hard and making so much effort and this was my first real experience of meditation i didn't have any understanding of how to work with my mind how to work with the hindrances you know all i knew light 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 so after a few days it became very clear that this was not going to work very well so manindra then said well why don't you you know go back and just do the vipassana mindfulness practice so i switched over to vipassana and when i started that i still had no concentration you know it's not that suddenly that became the miracle path so i was sitting in those early days and my mind was just thinking all the time i would sit down and think for an hour and get up and it was great the hour went quickly <laughs> you know it was very entertaining but it was quite clear i wasn't really getting any place so then i began to make a little more effort in my practice you know and slowly as i tried to bring the mind back to the breath i became more familiar with the hindrances how to work with the hindrances which you know were coming up but it still felt like quite a bit of a struggle you know always trying to bring the mind back again and again and again 
I had very strong commitment. I didn't have any doubt about the practice. I knew this is exactly what I wanted to be doing. But it wasn't easy. It was a real struggle with my mind. And then on one of my trips back to the States and then going back to India, I saw a movie, which this was kind of the late 60s, maybe some of you remember. It was a movie called Charlie, which was based on a short story, Flowers for Algernon. And basically, the part of the movie that really touched me a lot was... It just there was a scene which just showed people being cruel to somebody who was mentally challenged. You know, and I saw that, and that was in the context of a whole other story. But I just saw the scene, and I had this strong desire to do more metta, you know, to do some metta practice, feeling kind of the lack, you know, of that quality in myself, and seeing how when there isn't that quality of metta, that kind of cruelty can happen in our relationships to other people. So I went back to India and I told Manindra about all this. And so then I did six weeks of metta practice. And I did it in order to develop the loving kindness. But a side benefit, because loving kindness is a concentration practice, Right? It's a samadhi practice. As I was doing the metta, the loving-kindness, really for the first time I had a taste of what a somewhat concentrated mind is. My mind actually did develop some samadhi. And I had the thought, oh, this is why people like to meditate. Because when the mind develops this factor of enlightenment, and it wasn't you know, some great exalted level of concentration. It was just more than I had experienced before. The mind really got settled and the practice became more effortless. It gives us the flavor. It's this factor of awakening when it's strengthened even to just a very basic extent. It creates a sense of tremendous ease for us. And so even though as the stages of insight unfold, it's not always pleasant. You know, as different stages of insight, we really see a lot of dukkha at different times. But still, there's this easeful quality even in the unpleasant times. And it all is born from this factor, this strengthening of samadhi, of concentration. The image I use sometimes just to describe it, imagine yourself, imagine an arch, you know, and you're balancing right on the top of the arch. And then you fall off on one side and you have to really climb and struggle to get back to the top. And then you fall off the other side. You have to climb and struggle to get back to the top. That's the mind without concentration having been developed. Now invert the arch and just imagine a trough you know, and we're balanced, standing right at the bottom of the trough. And every once in a while, we're pulled out, we're pulled off-center, but naturally, the mind falls back to that resting place. We may be pulled off again, but naturally, the mind falls back. So that's what happens as this awakening factor of concentration 
is strengthened through our practice. As you know, concentration, like everything else, is an impermanent factor. It will wax and wane, and sometimes it's stronger, sometimes it's weaker. But the more we practice it, whether we're practicing it in the form of momentary concentration, whether we're practicing it in the form of meditative absorption, in whatever way we're developing this factor, as it becomes stronger, we establish a base of steadiness, of ease, of steadfastness. And this base then is a support for us through all the ups and downs, through all the changes of our practice. So next week I'm going to continue the discussion of this factor of enlightenment and concentration, particularly how we can practice it. You know, how, how can we work with it in a skillful way, in a balanced way, so that it becomes strong both in our meditation practice and in our lives? I'll just close with a teaching by a Tibetan master, Zigar Kongchul. And it's just a good reminder for us, I think. The potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts and realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your life into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you. So let's sit for a couple of moments.
Appreciate the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.